Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy, and this is the third Sunday of the month, so we are in our uh, historical theology track. And so what that means is that we are going to be looking at uh, the history of Christianity, the history of the church, the development of theology over the course of centuries, now how the church has uh, responded to errors, uh, formulated creeds and confessions, uh, and key figures uh, that have played into that. Uh, for those of you who uh, weren't here last week, uh, we kind of introduced our new schedule, and so the first Sunday of the month we'll continue to teach through the confession and study doctrine in a systematic way. The second Sunday uh, we're looking more at a biblical, uh, redemptive approach to the Bible as a book, how we study it, how we read it, how we learn from it, uh, in that way, uh, the third Sunday, which is this morning, we're going to be looking at the history of Christianity, the history of the church. The fourth Sunday, we'll be looking at practical theology, things like evangelism and apologetics, uh, family, uh, raising your children. Uh, and then the fifth Sunday, when we have those, will be a focus on missions. So this morning, uh, we're going to have an introduction now to uh, this idea of church history or uh, historical theology. And as we begin to do this, we have to ask ourselves why. Why would we uh, be interested in uh, studying the history of Christianity? We have some history of the early church recorded for us in the book of Acts, uh, but that only takes us uh, you know, midway through the first century, uh, and that's 2,000 years ago. And so uh, the Lord has continued to be active in his church and among his people, and we can learn things uh, from the course of the history of the church. Uh, a couple of things I was thinking about this morning that we uh, can learn is that uh, we can learn how the church over the course of centuries and in various contexts responded to the culture around it, uh, how it responded to various forms of persecution, how it responded to uh, cultures that held different belief systems. Uh, and we think about ourselves here in America and we think, well, We've had it fairly easy in our lifetimes. We're not, we've not suffered a lot of uh, outright hostile physical persecution. Uh, we've maybe suffered the sort of persecution that Christ speaks of when he talks about slanderings and revilings. But we can look around us in the world, even just our immediate neighbors to the north in Canada, and we can see that there are churches suffering persecution, pastors being imprisoned. Uh, and in China or North Korea and other places, uh, the church meets underground because of uh, persecution. People could lose their lives for professing Christ. Uh, so uh, it's very uh, relevant to the church today in the world. And, and the other thing is, is that how has the church responded to error? And we can see even in the pages of the New Testament that errors cropped up very quickly uh, in the life of the church. Most of Paul's letters are written to the churches to correct error, to warn against false teaching, and this continued even after the life of the apostles. This is the reason that we have the various creeds that we have, because it was the church responding to error. Uh, and one example of that that I think is sort of a cautionary tale for us would be the Council of Nicaea. In, in 325 AD, uh, the church gathers in a council to address the error of Arianism. Arius was a man who was teaching uh, that Christ was not eternally God. Uh, and so the council meets to refute this error. And 
it's important. The Council of Nicaea is important. The various actors there are important. Uh, the creed that they formulated is important. But uh, we hear a story that gets passed around that at that council, St. Nicholas uh, got so incensed with Arius, who was also present at the council, that according to which account you read, that St. Nicholas either slapped Arius or punched him uh, for his heretical views. By all accounts, that is probably not true. It probably didn't actually happen. But it serves to give us a little bit of a warning as we look at the history of the church. When we read the, the text of the scriptures, we can have assurance that this is the word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is infallible. It is inerrant. But as we look at the pages of church history, uh, we have to be cautious and know that uh, our view of history is not infallible and inerrant. There may be some things here that we don't know uh, or that we know incorrectly. And so we need to be cautious and bring a certain amount of humility with us as we study church history. But as we begin this, I want to answer the question just to begin with, uh, what is the church? When we think about church history, what are we talking about? What is the church? Anybody got an answer for that? What is the church? Quick definition. That the people of God, the universal body of believers. So uh, that's, that's what we're looking at, the history of God's people, God's people on earth and how God has faithfully uh, been present with them over the course of the last 2,000 years. So I want to read a couple of verses uh, just to give us uh, some biblical handles for this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Speaking of Christ, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So here the church is spoken of as the body of Christ, and Christ is its head. So we think about the people of God on earth. We have such a close association with Christ that it's as if we're his body and he is the head. So this, this shows us how important church history is because we're talking about the body of Christ. Secondly, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, this is Paul's letter to the young Timothy, uh, he says this in verses 14 and 15, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul describes the church as the household of God. This is the, the house of God. The people of God are God's family. We're his household. Uh, it's described as uh, the pillar and ground of the truth. In this world, God's revelation of himself to man in the scriptures uh, is primarily preserved and uh, glorified and rejoiced in in the church. So uh, these are important things to consider as we think about church history, that this is the body of Christ, this is the household of God. Uh, as, as we've said already, this is the people of God uh, on earth. And so in Acts chapter 11, this is a passage that we're familiar with, um, the churches begin to expand out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. 
But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. This means they're speaking to the Greeks, to the non-Jewish people. That's what a Hellenist is. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So here we've got a group of non-Jewish citizens of the Roman Empire, Greek speakers, Hellenists, uh, who hear Christ preached and come to faith, and it describes them as the church, and they're called Christians. And part of the point of reading this passage is to see that this is an Antioch, and it's a church. There was a church in in Jerusalem as well. And so one thing that we can think about the church is that the church is local. It's a visible gathering of the body of Christ, the people of God, in a particular location. In Antioch or Jerusalem, in Attica, Michigan, uh, these are their local expressions of the body of Christ. But it is also, of course, uh, the universal uh, church of God, the invisible church uh, spread throughout time and space. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, uh, it says that uh, in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. So here the church is pictured as not just those saints who are on earth, but those who are in heaven as well. Uh, All of those throughout time and space uh, who have trusted in Christ. And so uh, the church is local and visible. It is also universal and invisible. Uh, And so this is what we're studying, the history of God's dealings with his people. What has Christ promised Uh, to his church? Well, he has promised, first of all, that he will preserve it victorious. We see in Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18, that Christ promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So we can trust that uh, the church will be preserved by Christ, victorious uh, until his coming. And then we also see in what we call the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, that Christ has promised that he will be with his church. I will be with you to the end of the age. So uh, when we talk about the history of Christianity, the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, this is the people of God, uh, the body of Christ, and Christ has promised to be with them. And so that's that's what we're uh, looking at is how has he been with us? How has he protected and preserved his church victorious? And so as we think about the history of the church, uh, we can think of it this way. What we're studying is our family history. Uh, We're believers, we're Christians, we're part of this household of God, and so this is our family history. Another way to look at it might be through the lens of uh, national history. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says that the church is a holy nation. And so this is sort of like studying our national history as Christians. Uh, And so as we study our family history, our national history as believers, the history of God's people, victorious because Christ has promised to be with them. Uh, 
one thing that we should get out of this is that church history should be encouraging to us. Christ has promised his church victory. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The other thing is it shouldn't be boring and dry. It should be exciting. Christ is with his church. So this should excite us. It should stir us up uh, with excitement uh, to see how Christ has been with his church in the past, knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can trust that he will continue to be with his church in the present. So as we study church history, what kind of questions would we expect to be answered uh, by church history? Well, you know, if you're raising kids or grandkids, and they hear uh, some of what is said in church, they, they might ask a question and might say, well, how is it possible that Jesus is God and he's a man? I don't understand that, granddad. Explain that to me. Well, church history can help us answer that question because the church has answered this question in the past. That's why we have the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed uh, in order to answer questions like that. Somebody might ask you, why are there so many different denominations? Why do we have so many different churches that believe different things? Well, church history can explain that to us as we see uh, disagreements that have arisen and, and why they have arisen, and, and we can trace our lineage on this family tree. Uh, it can help us explain these differences. Even something as simple as, what does the word predestination mean? The word's in the Bible. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. So no matter what, how you define it, your definition of that is going to be influenced by church history. You're going to be influenced by Augustine, by Calvin, by Arminius, by someone. Your definition of that word is going to be influenced by church history uh, one way or the other. So church history is important because it helps us answer some of these big questions about our faith. So just out of curiosity, I want to do a little exercise. Let's see if we can name some important people that we know from church history. Who do we know from church history? Throw out a name for us. Who? Paul. Okay, the Apostle Paul. What we might consider the first missionary of the church, right? Spreads the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Multiple missionary journeys, incredibly important figure as we consider not only the doctrine that he uh, preserved for us in his letter to the churches, but the example that he set of missions in the world. Uh, name somebody else. Calvin. Incredibly important figure, one way or the other, whether you like him or dislike him, incredibly important figure. Uh, Calvin, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, and again, missionary endeavors. During the Reformation, Calvin, who was of French nationality, had to flee from France because of the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church. Ends up in Geneva, Switzerland. Do you know how many church planters and missionaries the church in Geneva sent out under Calvin's leadership? Over 2,000. 2,000 church planters and missionaries. Some of them sent incredible distances and into incredibly dangerous circumstances to proclaim the gospel vastly important in the history of the church. Name somebody else. Augustine. Augustine. Yeah, incredibly important figure in the history of the church. North African uh, in the fourth century. Augustine, doctrine of salvation, uh, arguing against the errors of Pelagius. 
formulating doctrines of the Trinity uh, in ways that people could understand. Uh, his writings are still hugely important in the history of the church. Um, you know, another one we might think of is Martin Luther, right? The Reformation, the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, his hymn writing, we still sing his hymns today, uh, incredibly important figure. How about Athanasius? Athanasius uh, in the fourth century, uh, his doctrine of, the, of Christ, uh, his Christology, arguing against the errors of Arianism. Here's a controversial one for you. How about Thomas Aquinas, Roman Catholic theologian from the 13th century, uh, medieval uh, doctor of the church, but a brilliant scholar and, and one who formulated doctrines of natural theology that are currently being debated uh, in the church today, in Reformed churches, debating uh, the value of Thomas Aquinas and his conclusions regarding natural theology. Incredibly important figure. Here's a new one that I just read about this week. We think about the history of the English Bible that we read. And we think about, okay, well, there's King James in 1611. There's the Geneva Bible slightly earlier than that. We can think about Wycliffe and Tyndale. Did you know that there was a king in England in the ninth century by the name of Alfred the Great who translated parts of the New Testament into English before the Roman Catholic Church stopped him? Uh, but he was really one of the first to translate the Bible into the English language. Incredibly important figure. So... Uh, some of these people are interesting and uh, important for us in the history of the church. I've got a little handout here. This is just for fun. You don't have to do it now. You can take this home uh, and do this later. But uh, this is uh, a little word search that has got 15 important figures from uh, the history of the church. Uh, and some of them you may know and some of them you may not know. And so this will help us uh, see that there are some important people that we need to learn about. So why is church history so important to us? We've touched on this a little bit, uh, but I have eight reasons here why uh, we should study church history. And the first one goes back to uh, what we've already said about the universal church, the, the people of God throughout time and space. As we study the history of Christianity in the world, it helps to root our faith in the beliefs of the universal church. It helps us to understand how what we believe, uh, and we have particular beliefs that may uh, in ways separate us from other traditions, other churches, but how are we related to one another? Uh, how, how do we trace our roots back to the universal church and see that connection? It helps kind of give us uh, some rootedness to our faith that we're not the first generation of Christians. We can see our relationship to the larger family tree. Um, and so it reminds us of that. It traces uh, our roots back to uh, the apostles, the prophets, and the patriarchs. And we can see that many of the truths that we hold dear are things that were expressed not only in the pages of Scripture, but in the early church and in other generations. Secondly, it helps us understand the branches. If we think about Christianity as a family tree that we're studying, it not only helps us trace our roots and connections back to the, the trunk or back to the roots, but it helps us see that other churches are connected in that way as well. Even though we may have some doctrinal disagreement, 
uh, we can see that, hey, they're branches on the same tree, right? So we can look at uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or some of the conservative Presbyterians and we can go, hey, yeah, we disagree with them on issues like baptism or church government, but we can see that as we trace our history, we can see how it intersects with their history and we can see that we're just different branches on the same tree. We're part of the same family. These are our brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord. Abigail, I need you to do me a favor. Get in my briefcase and get my copy of the confession. I forgot to bring it up here with me. Uh, so this, this helps us. It humbles us a little bit that we can see our connection to other Christians. We can recognize that uh, some of these disagreements that we may have are uh, honest disagreements, and we need to be humble and recognize that you know, we may not have everything right. In fact, we can be pretty positive that we don't have everything right. Our own confession says that the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and that includes us, right? Every church that's on earth now is subject to mixture and error. We may have unbelievers. We may have doctrinal beliefs that we're getting wrong, right? But uh, we can understand that we're all connected to the same root to the same trunk, which is Christ. But the confession goes on to warn us that some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. And so we can understand some of the branches on the tree may have so far departed from sound doctrine that they've died. They're dead branches, and at some point God may prune them. And so we can look at churches like the Presbyterian Church USA, and we can see that for decades now they have been not only celebrating homosexual marriage, but ordaining homosexuals to the ministry. And we can say, this, this church looks like it's dead as far as solid biblical Christianity goes. Uh, and God seems to be in the process of pruning it. We can see the same thing happening with the United Methodist Church over the same issue. Uh, and so there's a warning for us here, a warning for us to be humble in regards to our brothers and sisters in Christ and other traditions and denominations, a warning for us to be cautious and make sure that we cling tightly to sound doctrine. But there's also an encouragement because it goes on to say, nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world to the end thereof, of such as believe in him and make profession of his name. So we can be encouraged as we study church history that Christ's promise to preserve his church is fulfilled, that there always is a church on earth that does belong to Christ. The third reason why we should study church history is that it helps us rightly interpret the Scripture. Uh, this is God's Word to God's people, and we're not the first generation to have the Scripture. We're not the first generation to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we can benefit from those who have gone before us and from their insight. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my favorite uh, phrases comes from the author C.S. Lewis, who talked about what he called chronological snobbery. And that is, is that we tend to be uh, enamored with things that are new. And, and we like new things. We like the latest and greatest thing. And he warned us against that because it's difficult for us to see our own errors. But as we look back in church history, we can see previous generations and we can recognize what their errors were, but we can also see the things that they got right. And, and we can see as we look back, these men remained faithful. Uh, throughout the course of their lives. C.S. Lewis is a great example of this. Began as an atheist, became a Christian, became a, a, an apologist for the Christian faith, a great thinker, 
he got some things wrong. There are some things I disagree with in his writings, but he finished his race well, and we can look at the trajectory of his life, and we can see that over the course of his life, he was moving towards more and more sound doctrine. On the other hand, we can look at pastors and teachers that are alive today who may have started well but didn't end well or look like they're heading towards not ending well. Andy Stanley has expressed errors that go back to the early church, Marcionism, the heresy of Marcionism, wanting to disconnect and unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. I mean, this is an ancient heresy that he is now espousing. So uh, this going back and looking at church history protects us from chronological snobbery, from thinking that we've got it all right and nobody before us has. C.S. Lewis actually recommended, and I can't remember the exact figure and I couldn't find it, um, that as we read books and, and read uh, doctrine and stuff like that, he suggested that uh, we should read far more old books than we do new books. And I can't remember if it was four out of five or nine out of ten, but something like that, that for every author that we read who is currently alive, we ought to be reading at least four authors who are dead who have finished their race well. Uh, and so that's probably a good habit to get into. The fourth reason that church history is important is that it, it helps us hold to sound doctrine. Uh, Paul, this coming Wednesday night, will begin uh, two weeks of teaching us from uh, the letter of Jude. And one of the things that Jude says uh, in the beginning of his letter is, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which has once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, and so we need to contend for the faith that has been delivered to the church. And church history can help us uh, see how the church has dealt with errors in the past. It can help us see uh, what is sound doctrine, what has stood the test of time. Uh, I read a quote this week that said, new kinds of Christians are really just old kinds of heretics. So somebody starts teaching something new, claims they have a new uh, insight, a new uh, brand of Christianity, they're probably just recycling an old brand of heresy. But we can think about uh, some of the creeds that, that the church formulated over the years, so the Nicene Creed, that teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity and informs our view of God, the Chalcedonian Creed that informs our view of the deity of Christ, um, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, which give us the foundations, the basics of, of what a person must believe in order to be a Christian. Uh, we can look at the great schism between the, the Western and the Eastern Church uh, in the early 11th century and, and look at um, the nature of the Holy Spirit and his relation to the Father and the Son. We can look at the period of the Reformation and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We can look at our history uh, as Baptists and look at the doctrine of baptism of believers only. Uh, so church history helps inform and shape our understanding of sound doctrine. Fifth, I believe church history helps us guard against reading our own culture back into the Bible. Uh, and this is important because we think about, and I've already mentioned this morning, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA uh, that celebrates homosexuality, endorses, uh, marries homosexuals, ordains homosexuals to the ministry. Um, this denomination and others like it would, 
would have you believe that we should read the Bible and go, well, anything that's there that appears to be uh, anti-homosexual is simply for that culture. And there's a trajectory here in the writings of the, of the Bible. And we should see that, that God is love. And, and so we should accept this today. And they, and they try and read our cultural understanding of homosexuality back into the scriptures. But if we study church history, we would see that there's nearly universal agreement for 2,000 years in the church regarding homosexuality being a sin. So church history is important. Another one that we might think of uh, is the idea that uh, the consumption of alcohol in and of itself is sinful. The church clearly teaches, the scripture clearly teaches that drunkenness is a sin. But 2,000 years of church history on multiple continents and in different contexts would show us that the mere consumption of alcohol itself is not inherently sinful. And that we can see that this is largely taught in many circles in American Christianity as a result of post-prohibition American culture. Uh, and so we shouldn't read our culture back into the pages of Scripture. Sixth, church history can help shape how we worship as believers. We can look at church history at the kind of the iconoclast controversy uh, between uh, the church and those who wanted to do away with the icons. Uh, we can think about uh, the regulative principle recovered during the Reformation or simply just looking at uh, the history of liturgy in the churches. Why did certain churches develop certain liturgies and others different sorts of liturgies? And, and what is the significance? What was their theological basis for that? How did they justify it from the scripture? Seventh, church history helps us uh, learn from others. And, and there's a bit of overlap here with some of my other points. But think about this. If we have children or grandchildren, we want to teach them the scriptures. We want to teach them to believe, to have faith in Christ. We don't just hand them a Bible and expect them to start from scratch and formulate doctrine all on their own. Right? We teach them about God and about the Trinity and, and about baptism and these different things. So if we don't expect our children to start from scratch, why would we think that we ought to start from scratch? We ought to learn from those who have come before us, those who have invested uh, their lives in uh, study of the Scripture and teaching of the Scripture, some who have given their lives uh, for the teaching of the Scripture. So we should not ignore uh, the generations that have come before us. We should learn from the best of them, learn from their errors even, uh, but it's important that we learn from others. And then finally, uh, it inspires us to persevere, uh, to finish our race well. Uh, as we've talked about looking back at, at authors and men in, in church history who we can see that they finished their race well. Uh, as we study church history, we can think about uh, the martyrdom of the apostles. We can think about uh, characters like Polycarp burned at the stake. Uh, we can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, we can look at the history of the Reformation, Martin Luther and others who uh, suffered, had a price on their heads. Some of them gave their lives. We can look at, at Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, and uh, the, the many trials that he went through because of the downgrade controversy, as it is called. We can look at the life of missionaries like Adoniram Judson and be inspired uh, by their lives that they gave for the sake of the gospel going to the nations. So uh, church history can help inspire us and excite us so that we finish our race well. So that is why church history matters. Uh, I want to spend the next 
uh, eight to ten minutes uh, just talking briefly uh, about the first century. Uh, when we get to the end of the book of Acts, uh, we've had the missionary journeys of Paul, uh, but the history of the church continues uh, there in the first century. And one of the big questions that arose in the first century in the Roman Empire was, what is a Christian? Uh, they began to be called Christians at Antioch early on, uh, before uh, Paul even began his missionary journeys. But the question was, what is a mission? What is a Christian? Is a Christian is Christianity simply uh, a sect of Judaism, or is it something new? Is it a new religion? How should the Roman Empire treat it? The Roman Empire gave a lot of leeway to the Jewish religion. Uh, the Romans themselves worshipped a whole plethora of gods. The Jews didn't. They were monotheistic. Rome tolerated that because the Jews were, believe it or not, 7% of the population of the Roman Empire. Uh, so Rome gave them a lot of leeway to practice their religion. And so when Christianity arose on the scene, it enjoyed some of the privileges of Judaism because it was related to it. But the question began to be asked, is this a new religion? Should it be treated separately from Judaism or should it simply be treated as a sect of Judaism? Well, by uh, 100 AD, that question had been answered and Christianity was being treated as a separate religion. There are two events in the first century that uh, really cemented that in the minds both of Christians and Jews and also in the minds of the Romans. And those two events are uh, first 64 AD and the burning of Rome. Right? So you've heard of this, probably you've heard you know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, that sort of thing. What happened was is that there was a fire that broke out in the great city of Rome. It lasted about six days, and 10 of Rome's 14 districts were reduced to rubble and ash, completely destroyed by this ravaged fire. Nero actually uh, was not in Rome when the fire started, according to the best accounts of history that we have. He returned to Rome and tried to organize efforts to put the fire out, but the mob blamed Nero for the fire, right? They, they blamed him, which we still see that happen today, right? We blame our leaders for everything that goes wrong. So Nero got blamed. Nero started the fire, some people said. Uh, and so Nero needed somebody to pin it on to get the heat off of him, so he blamed it on the Christians. Uh, he said, no, it was the Christians that started the fire. It was the Christians that burned Rome. And during the course of uh, this controversy and some of the persecution of Christians that happened after this, uh, the apostle Peter was martyred in Rome. Uh, by all historical accounts, he was crucified upside down. Uh, so uh, why did Nero blame the Christians for this fire? Well, Christianity was largely misunderstood by the Romans. Uh, the Romans kind of understood Judaism. Uh, they knew what it was. They're this monotheistic ancient religion. But Christianity was this new thing, and they, they weren't certain how related it was to Judaism. But they saw some distinct practices of the Christian church that just confused them. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, one of the things was is the Christians, like the Jews, didn't worship all of the Roman gods. Right? They worshipped this one god, but they said he was a man. They called him Jesus. Uh, and so the, the Romans were confused by this. Do they worship God or do they worship this man? Who is this Jesus? Why don't they worship all the gods? And so many um, Romans considered Christians to be atheistic. They thought they were atheists because they didn't worship all of the gods. Uh, 
They also thought they were very unpatriotic because the Romans worshipped all of these gods because they were wanting the gods to protect the empire. So for the Christians not to worship the Roman gods was considered very unpatriotic, very un-Roman. There were other practices of the church that just confused Rome, particularly the practice of the Lord's Supper or communion. The Christians, behind closed doors, were partaking of the body and blood of the God that they claimed to worship. This completely confused the Romans. Part of it was because the Christians were very secretive about it. They guarded the Lord's Supper very closely. They would not even let non-Christians be present in the room when they partook of the Lord's Supper. So the Romans had very little information about what was going on behind closed doors. They knew that they were eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ, this God that they claimed to worship. And so many Romans began to think that the Christians were cannibals, that they were actually eating flesh and drinking blood. In fact, uh, they did this in the context of what they called a love feast. And they called one another brothers and sisters. And so they thought, they're committing incest. They're not only cannibals, but they're committing incest. And so here's a, a record that we have in a, a Roman history uh, written by a Roman historian uh, in about the second century. And here's how he described what the Christians were doing when they partook of the Lord's Supper. An infant is covered with dough to deceive the innocent. I mean, this is how far off they were. They thought the Christians took an infant and wrapped it in dough. The infant is then placed before the person who is to be stained with their rights. So a new initiate into Christianity who's about to partake of the Lord's Supper for the first time doesn't know what's going on. We've got an infant covered in dough that's placed before this person. The young pupil slays the infant. Thirstily, the Christians then lick up its blood. Eagerly, they tear apart its limbs. After much feasting, they extinguish the lights. Then the connections of depraved lust involve them in an uncertain fate because they thought they were committing acts of incest because they talked about their love feasts and called one another brothers and sisters. This is how ignorant the Romans were of what truly was happening in the Christian church. And so they, they didn't understand Christianity. Another thing that they didn't understand about Christianity that just seemed totally backwards to them was the Roman culture itself uh, very much valued um, their status in culture and in society. And you can see this even in the book of Acts, right, when Paul at times has to uh, rely upon his Roman citizenship to get him out of trouble. And so in Rome you had citizens, you had natural-born citizens you, like Paul. You had citizens who had purchased their citizenship. You had people who were not citizens, but they were free men. And then you had a large class of slaves. You also had women who were treated differently than men. But these Christians come along, and Christians, even unlike their Jewish counterparts, the Christians treated everyone equally. It's part of their scripture says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the Romans just couldn't understand how the Christians could ignore such important social structures. The Christian church would welcome slaves independent of their master, women independent of their husband or their father. Not only that, but a slave could actually be a leader in the Christian church. And the Romans could not understand how the Christians could do such a thing. So 
When Nero blamed the Christians, he was picking a group of people that the Romans just didn't understand. They viewed them with suspicion. They're cannibals. They're incestuous. They're overturning the social order of the empire. They're unpatriotic. So you can see why Nero decided to blame the Christians for this great fire that had happened. And this began to change the Roman um, attitude towards Christians and began to see them not so much as a sect of Judaism that ought to be protected, but as some new religion that maybe ought to be persecuted and stamped out. The other thing that happened was uh, a few years after this, there was a Jewish uprising around 66 AD. A lot of Jews gathered in Jerusalem and, and thought they were going to throw off the shackles of Rome. And so Nero uh, sent an army, sent about 60,000 men under the command of a general um, named Vespasian. And, and he sent him to, to Jerusalem uh, to squash this uprising of the Jews. And so the army begins to make its way through Galilee. It begins to conquer cities. It's heading toward Jerusalem. And then uh, Vespasian gets the news that Nero has committed suicide. And so he takes his army. He turns around and he hightails it for Rome. He gets to Rome and he seizes the throne and makes himself emperor. But we've still got this uprising going on in Jerusalem. So once he has secured his position, he sends the army back to Rome in 70 AD. They lay siege to Jerusalem in the spring, and by the fall, Jerusalem has fallen, and they destroy it. They destroy the city. They tear down the temple. Over a million Jews are slaughtered in the streets. It's a horrible, horrible event that happens. The Christian response to this was horror uh, over the slaughter of a million plus Jews. But there was also a response of neutrality. The Christians had fled from Jerusalem uh, before the siege began. Uh, those who remained managed to sneak out of the city, many of them, uh, and they did not join the Jews in revolting against the Roman Empire. Uh, the teachings of the Apostle Paul and others had taught the Jews to pray for the emperor, uh, or the Christians, rather, to pray for the emperor uh, and to recognize him as an authority that was established by God. And so the Christians tried to remain neutral throughout this conflict. And, and, and after the fact, even though the, the Christians were horrified at the slaughter, they began to see this as a punishment enacted by God on the Jewish state for its rejection of Christ. And they began to see it as a fulfillment of prophecies that Christ had made uh, in the book of Matthew particularly. The Jewish response to this was to be very upset with their Christian friends for maintaining this neutrality and not coming uh, to join arms with them against Rome. And so what they did in the wake of this, uh, the Jewish worship shifted from the temple to the synagogue because the temple had been destroyed. And in the synagogue, they ejected all the Christians. They actually changed the prayers that were said in the synagogue to make them such that a Christian would not want to join in those prayers. Uh, so the Jews began to distance themselves from the Christians, to exclude the Christians, and to treat the Christians as an entirely separate religion. And so Christianity began to be recognized as its own faith, separate from uh, Judaism. And in the second century, uh, we'll see next month, this began to lead to persecution on a much larger scale. But let's close this morning in a word of prayer.